Well, friends, as we move right along, we are at the final week of our sermon series called Asking for a Friend. Uh, This is the final week, and this is a series in which we have been answering a variety of questions that you asked across all four of our campuses, people who submitted questions and wanted to know what we as the church thought about these various issues. And some of these questions have been very heavy on doctrine. Some of these questions have dealt with what we call non-essential beliefs. Um, That's a term that refers to a variety of issues where faithful Christians are able to disagree on those issues, okay? And that term, non-essential beliefs, it it comes from this um, ancient statement from St. Augustine, who, who was a church father in roughly the 300s, okay? And he had this statement where he says, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, but in all things, charity, or in all things, love, right? And and today's questions that we're going to take a look at, we're going to try to apply that statement to, right? What does it mean for us to acknowledge there are some areas where Christians can disagree, but they give the freedom, the liberty to disagree, but regardless of those areas, love, Regardless of what that might look like, we seek to express the loving hand of Jesus Christ to one another. So today's questions, as I said, cover a wide range of topics. Some of you are going to have a little bit of a, uh, oh, we're talking about that today, as we enter into some of these questions. But you ready? Ready? All right, let's dive in. Here's our first question. How can I minister to my unbelieving adult children? How can I minister to my adult, unbelieving children? Now first, let me just acknowledge that this is hard. For those of you, or even if you know of others, of friends, family, etc., that have children who are, who are adults but do not profess the same faith that you profess, this can be hard. It can be difficult. We we get that. Trying to minister to your family, especially to your adult kids, may be one of the most challenging things you can do. And Jesus, did you know Jesus, he did not have any kids. He did not have any biological children. But Jesus sure did have family struggles. And so if you are feeling like you're somebody that's having family struggles, don't worry, you're in good company. Jesus did as well. Mark 6, 4, Jesus says this. He says, a prophet is honored everywhere except where? except in his own town and among his relatives, especially in his home, right? Jesus himself, there's all these sorts of stories where the people that are rejecting him the most are the people that he grew up with, right? And so Jesus had plenty of moments where the people that were closest to him, his family, were rejecting the very message that he was trying to bring. And so when it comes to being a parent and trying to figure out how do I come alongside my unbelieving adult children, yes, it's difficult, it's, it's painful. Jesus knows what that feels like as well. Now, those of you who are parents, those of you who are parents, you all know that parenting is an extremely easy thing to do. You all know that it's a very, very straightforward task, and all you have to do is just to do a, a few quick things, and then you'll have perfect children who do everything you want them to do, Correct? In what world is what I heard somebody say? Okay, obviously I'm being sarcastic, right? No, parenting might be one of the most difficult things that you will ever encounter in this entire planet, right? When it comes to trying to come alongside and help another person grow up to be a human being. Might be one of the most difficult things that's ever on this planet. Parenting is difficult, and in some ways, 
those of you who have adult, adult children, you know that parenting in some ways never ends, regardless of how old they might be. Kids might grow up, but they are still many times looking for the wisdom that comes from their elders, from their parents. And so how can parents offer wisdom to their adult children? Especially when it comes to matters of faith. How do, they do it? How do we do it in a way that is humble? How do we do it in a way that it might be received? Well, again, I can't give you this perfect formula that if you just obey steps one, two, and three, it's going to magically turn out with that. We're dealing with people here, and we get that. But here's a few suggestions that I can offer as we go about exploring how we can minister to our adult unbelieving children. One, consistency is key. Okay, and let me just say, like these, these points are going to require self-reflection from those of you who are parents. You're going to have to stop and ask yourself, is this true in my own life? First, consistency is key. Your life is an open book to your family. The people who live with you are the ones who know what you're really like. They see your ups and downs. They see your emotions and your mood swings and your changes and all of those actions that you take. And they see the inconsistencies between what you profess to believe and how you actually live it. Many of our kids will see the inconsistencies in their parents' faith. And so when it comes to this consistency, model your faith in a way in which you mean it. Let your kids, children or adults, let them see you live out your faith. Let them see you pray. Let them hear you pray. Let them see you reading your Bible. Let them see you participating in the life of the church. Let them see you engaging in acts of obedience. Let them see you wrestling with matters of faith, not quite sure what to do. Peter says this in chapter 2 of his letter. He says, live such good lives among pagans that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So this idea that, you know, Peter's saying, look, when it, when it comes to living among non-Christians in our society, we need to live lives that are so consistent that they will not be able to accuse us of, of being, you know, and faithful. Why don't we apply that to our parenting as well? Those of you who are parents, consistency is key in the way in which you live your lives. Which just leads right next to the second point, okay? The second point is this, is this. Be transparent. Okay, newsflash, did you know that you are not a perfect person? And if you're a parent, your kids definitely know this too, right? In fact, some of you may have kids that remind you of how imperfect you are on a regular basis. You are not perfect, so don't try to act like it. Be transparent. Allow your imperfections, as hard as this might be, allow your imperfections at times to show. Let your kids see your failures, and this is, but this is most important. And then let them see how you move past them. It's okay to show regret. It's okay to admit mistakes. It's okay to openly repent. It's okay to express what you've learned through failure. Talk about God's grace and forgiveness in your life. Talk about how you have experienced God at work in your own failures, in your own mistakes. Be transparent. Next. Take time, look for opportunities to point out God moments. So God moments are simply this. Moments that happen throughout our lives where God shows up, where God impacts you in a unique way in every believer's life. Don't be afraid to talk about those moments with the people that, are, that you love and care about the most. A, a prayer is answered. Talk about it. A person you know is healed. Talk about it. 
You're able to, to, to help come alongside a person who's going through a difficult time. Talk about it. Show your family the ways in which God has shown up in your life. Talk about those times. Fourth, don't overwhelm them. Okay, this one might be one of the biggest challenges for many parents. Have any of you ever been killed with kindness? Right? You know this idea, you know, maybe you're sick for, some, for a week and there's a, somebody that has this really well-meaning intentions of, oh, we're going to help you, I'm going to drop off meals, I'm going to call you, text you, see how you're doing. But then they just never seem to stop. And then after a week or two, you're just feeling like, look, I'm fine, I'm thankful that you want, me to, that you want to know how I'm doing, but please just give me some space. Have you ever felt that way before? You know, at first it's, an, it's awesome and it's a blessing, but then after a while you start to feel like just enough. And without even realizing it, you start pushing, pushing somebody away because of their constant hovering, right? Many times when it comes to our unbelieving children, we have to do this, this manage this tension. You love them. You care about them. You want what's best for them. And how do you manage that tension of not overwhelming them at the same time? You care and you should care. You want to plead with them to believe. But, but maybe you shouldn't, you know, come to their doorstep and drop off 15 different books that you want them to read and send them, you know, dozens of sermons that you want them to listen to. You know, sometimes there's this dance of having to make sure that you're not overwhelming them through this process. So be careful. Interestingly, Proverbs 25, this says this. This is a very interesting verse. You never know what's in the Bible sometimes, right? Seldom set foot in your neighbor's house because too much of you and they will hate you. (laughs) Maybe next time you have company that you can't get them to leave, you should just read this verse out loud and then leave it at that. (laughs) Last but not least, pray. Now this should have been listed first, right? But in many ways, we need to end it with just the biggest, most important for one. Pray. Oh, my goodness. Pray, 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 pray. If you're not praying for your kids, then, of course, things aren't going to be moving. Pray, 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 because it does not depend on you. It depends on the power of God. So pray, 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 putting your kids in the loving hands of a powerful, almighty God. Now, as we move along to some of our next questions, the, I, I need to give a public service announcement to some of these next three questions. These questions that we're going to take a look next uh, deal with various issues related to morals and, and or ethics. And so what that means is they're about various behaviors that many of people in our society are wondering about. They're, they're questions that are asking, are these behaviors off-limits to Christians, and if so, why? The topics are premarital sex, alcohol, and using marijuana. Excited? Now, when it comes to asking questions such as this, there, there, there's, a, there, there's something that we need to first examine. We need to, um, sometimes we ask questions like this because we want to find the loopholes, right? It's kind of like when, my, when our son Elliot, when we tell him, don't cross this line, he tends to look for as many things that he can do without cro- technically crossing the line, right? You know, for example, sometimes at dinner, Rachel and I will have to tell him, we'll have to say, Elliot, stay in your chair, because he's always running around, and he's not, you know, oh, I'm going to get up and go through, no, stay in your chair. Elliot interprets that as, I'm allowed to jump up and down, dance, do cartwheels, whatever I want, as long as it's in my chair, right? (laughs) Joking aside, many times when we ask questions like this, we need to examine our motives. Why are we asking this question? Is it because we're trying to find out how much we can technically do without getting into trouble? Right? How many of you know what the speed limit is, but you know if you drive a little bit 10 over, you still won't get pulled over, right? 
Are we asking questions as a way to examine where the loopholes are so that we can make sure we do as much as we can without getting into trouble? Or are we asking the question because we want to know how we can best surrender and obey God out of love? There's a huge difference, but many times we come to the same issue from totally different motivations. So motivation is key. So having said that, let's address the first question. Why should we wait until marriage to have sex? Now, it's true. The Bible never explicitly says this sentence. It never says, wait until marriage to have sex. It never says that anywhere in the scriptures. But rather, it is assumed and implied whenever the Bible is talking about sexual ethics. So take a look at these two verses, for example. 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul, he writes this. He says, because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. Okay? And another place, the author of Hebrews, he says this. He says, give honor to marriage and remain faithful to one another in marriage. God will surely judge people who are immoral and those who commit adultery. Now, the, passage, the phrase that I want to take a look at, it shows up more specifically in that 1 Corinthians passage, but the phrase is sexual immorality, okay? The word, the word in Greek for that phrase sexual immorality is the word porneia. And yes, that is where we get our English word pornography. The Greek word porneia is what gets often translated in English sexual immorality. But here's one of the challenges when it comes to translations, okay? When it comes to taking the Greek that Paul wrote and translated into English. When we are reading this, reading this in English, it doesn't tell us what is and what isn't sexual immorality. We have to know what is the definition of porneia in order to actually understand what is being talked about when, it, when they use that phrase, sexual immorality. So it's not like they give us this huge list. These are the things that count. Well, in the early church, that word porneia, and so the early Christians, they, there was a whole list of things that they kind of assumed were included within that term, were included within sexual immorality. And one of the things that the early church, early Christians understood to be a part of that phrase was sex outside of marriage. And so when we hear the places in the New Testament talking about sexual immorality, one of the things they're talking about is sex outside of marriage. It's a huge category that covers all type of sexual morals, and that happens to be one of them. And so, one of, so whenever we say that, no, the Bible doesn't outright say, do not have sex outside of marriage, where it does show up is throughout all of the places where the Bible talks about sexual immorality. Now, Here's partly why the Bible has to say this, why God has to say this, because a lot of it has to do with what sex is and what the purpose of sex is, why God created it. God created sex to be sacred, to be holy, to be beautiful, to be precious. Sex is meant to be the highest level of physical intimacy between two people. It is meant to be the highest level of physical intimacy between two people. And because it is designed to be so sacred, because it's something that's meant to be precious, you protect it. You protect those things that are meant to be most, the most sacred and holy. Now, because of that, God intended sex to be kept within... Because God intended sex to be kept sacred, to be kept beautiful, to be kept holy, the way that God designed sex to be protected, this holy thing, was within the covenant of marriage. Now, Another reason is because, and I said this a little minute ago, now because sex is the highest form of physical intimacy, it needs to match 
the same height, the same level, you will, of relational intimacy. Does that make sense? Sex is the highest level of physical intimacy, and therefore it needs to match the same level of relational or emotional intimacy that we might have with another person. That's what marriage is designed to be. Marriage is designed to be a covenant between a husband and a wife who have made the highest form of commitment, the highest level of intimate commitment to one another. And that happens through their wedding vows. If you've ever been to a wedding, there's a moment where the husband and the wife are making what? Vows to one another. They're making commitments to one another. These are meant to be the highest level of intimate relational commitments that they can make to one another. And sex is the physical act that shows that those relational commitments have been made. Sex is meant to look backwards to the commitment that was made at that wedding. And so think of it this way. When a husband and a wife have sex, they're renewing their vows. Sex is meant to be a look backwards to the commitment that was made to one another. But sex before marriage or sex outside of marriage, it doesn't have any commitment to be looking towards, to be looking to. Now, many people will say, oh, but we're going to. We're going to get married. But, but, but we really do love one another. We've made that promise to one another. And, okay, yeah, you know, people can make those types of statements. But at the, but at the end of the day, it's just a really good educated guess whether or not you're going to get married, whether or not you really are going to stay together. I mean, you don't know for sure until the commitment has been made. There's not a 100% commitment until there's been a 100% commitment. And sex is about renewing the commitment that has been made. Now, lastly, in a long and complex passage that comes from the book of Ephesians, Paul, he's, he's talking to husbands and telling them to love their wives. He's talking to wives and telling them to love and respect their husbands. And, and, and after all of this, this complex ver- passage, there, and he has these verses that you see up there on your screen that come from uh, verses 31 and 32 from chapter 5. He makes this mysterious statement. He says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. <laughs> and you might be like, what? What? In this passage, Paul describes Jesus as a groom and and the church as a bride. And and sex within marriage is meant to actually be this, this foretaste of the kind of intimacy that we will all one day have with God in heaven. And, and, and when we say that, I mean, this is not about physical pleasure. That's not what Paul has in mind here when he's talking about this. He's talking about intimacy, right? The type of intimacy that, that we are so known and loved and, and vulnerable with another person. Paul is saying, you know, that's what we're supposed to have with God someday. The same type of powerful, re- relational, intimate, intimacy of all kinds. Sex in marriage is meant to point to that. It's giving this, this beautiful picture of what will one day be in, in relationship with God. And I get it. If you're not a Christian, this sounds so strange to you. I get that. But sex outside of marriage is, is, is actually kind of distorting this vision that Paul is trying to give as to what it's meant to, to point towards. That it's meant to point towards this beautiful relationship that, that we will have one day with God between Christ and the church. When we just start turning sex into something that's only about physical pleasure, it begins to distort the whole concept of what God intended sex to be. This beautiful level of intimacy between two human beings that reveal the kind of intimacy that God will one day have with his people. Now, I realize 
some of you, you might be just feeling a little bit awkward right now, feeling a little bit guilty even, if you're just reflecting on things that have happened in your own life. And I just want you to know that if that's you, first of all, just embrace the awkwardness. It's okay to just like accept this fact like, oh man, you know, this is something that I've never thought of it that way before or, I've, or maybe I've, I've made a mistake in the past or I've even given people some advice that was a little bit outside of what I'm hearing right now. If you're feeling a little bit of a, a little awkward right now, that's okay. Embrace that awkwardness and just allow it to be a way in which God is trying to reveal in your own heart, in your own life, a place where you can surrender back to him. And I also want you all to know, don't forget this, we serve a God who loves you and cares for you and, 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 and is, wants you to, to know what it means to experience his grace and mercy and forgiveness. Too many times we hear these types of commands, whatever they might be, and then we just attach them to commands and we don't actually talk about what it means to live in forgi- as forgiven people before God. And so if you're somebody who's just sitting there and you're wrestling with this, go to God and just confess Tell him what you're wrestling with. Tell him what you're struggling with. And allow the mercy and the grace of God who has promised to forgive you when you confess to know that you are a forgiven child of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. We good? All right, let's move on to one that's even more fun. Ready? Is it okay for a Christian to drink alcohol? Is it okay for a Christian to drink alcohol? And, you know, um, I have a friend of mine. He's a pastor in another, in another church. He once told me a story of when he, he was pastoring somewhere down south. I won't say where. And he had a member of the church randomly show up, and he asked if he could walk through and inspect all of his cabinets to make sure that there was no ounce of alcohol anywhere in the home. So first of all, thank you for none of you doing that uh, to Rachel and I. But second of all, this is an area that many Christians have very strong differences of opinion on, Right? Now, you might have grown up in a tradition where you're like, ah, it doesn't matter, right? But other people have grown up in traditions where this is an extremely important topic. And so, as we talk about, is it okay for a Christian to drink alcohol? So first of all, here's what I'm going to say. My answer to this question is this. Yes, it is okay for a Christian to have a drink of alcohol. However, you guys all knew there was something coming, right? However, there's many things to think about when it comes to consuming alcohol, especially as a Christian. First of all, this is just something that we need to acknowledge. This is, this is sort of basic Christian doctrine. First of all, because when you become a Christian, we are given the Spirit of God. The, the, God's Holy Spirit is living within us, is living inside of you. And when that happens, when you put your faith in Jesus and you receive the, the Holy Spirit, one of the things that we receive from Christ is freedom. We receive this freedom that we are no longer enslaved to the, to, to, to the law, to the law of sin and death. We are free now to live according to the Spirit. What that means is, as Christians, we obey the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. Uh, Paul says this way in Galatians 5. He says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened by a yoke of slavery. And so... We have the freedom as Christians to make certain choices about how we live our lives as long as those choices are guided by the Holy Spirit. But just because we have freedom doesn't mean that we can do whatever we want. We are still expected to make those decisions wisely. Paul writes in another letter in 1 Corinthians 8, he says, Be careful that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Be careful that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. So when you apply this this principle that Paul writes to the question of alcohol, 
Just because somebody might have the freedom to drink alcohol doesn't mean they can drink it whenever they want to and wherever they want to and with whomever they want to. If you are, say, dining with a fellow brother or sister in Christ who, first of all, believes that drinking alcohol is wrong, then it's up to us to kind of to actually come to their level, if you will, and say, I'm not going to drink because I know that this is something that you disagree with. I'm not going to do that out of love. Or let's say that you are in relationship with another person who is a Christian, but perhaps they are an alcoholic, or they are actively struggling with something. It is up to you as a follower of Jesus to not just say, I'm going to start drinking alcohol and, 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 and be you know, in, within that as a way of you know, coming alongside them and helping them in that journey. Many times when it comes to drinking alcohol, we have to stop and ask, where am I, with whom am I, and how is this going to be perceived by the other people? Because, again, we might have freedom, but we still have to use wisdom. Now, another careful principle that, that Scripture is very clear about is this. When it comes to drinking alcohol, you are not supposed to get drunk or intoxicated. Uh, Romans 13 Verse 13, he says, Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, and there's that again, and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy, right? This is just one verse, and there's others as well, where Scripture clearly says that you are not to get drunk. And so if Christians are drinking for the sake of getting drunk, then they are in violation of Scripture. So when you are, and also again, when you are doing this, pay attention to the witness that you're putting forth. How are your kids perceiving the way that you handle alcohol? How are your neighbors perceiving the way that you handle alcohol? And on and on and on. Those who observe you go to church on Sunday and then go home and get drunk some other day of the week, what are they going to be thinking? How, what, what idea are they going to be you know, thinking about when it comes to that, how that person follows Jesus? So again, there is freedom in how we might use something such as alcohol, but there is also wisdom that we are obligated to as Christians to be able to ask, how am I going to use this for the sake of the kingdom of God? How is this going to be perceived? Now, a very similar question as we move right along. Somebody asked this question as well from the church. Is there any biblical reason to avoid the use of cannabis? Ready? Now, back when using marijuana was illegal, this was a really easy question. <laughs> because the answer to the question back when it was illegal was simply this. Christians are commanded by Scripture to obey, those, to obey our governmental authorities. And therefore, because it is illegal, as Christians, we're expected also to you know, abide by the law of the land. And, you know, the only time when we're not as Christians called to obey the law is if it is in violation of Scripture, right? But this is not something that is one way or the other. So, but now that various forms of, of cannabis are, are, are becoming legalized in various locations and various places, the topic, it gets a lot murkier now. What do we do when it's suddenly legal? So when it comes to something like marijuana use, one of the first things we have to do, and you'll see there's some overlap here between, with alcohol as well. <coughs> Excuse me. First, we have to acknowledge that there is a distinction between prohibition and wisdom, okay? There's a distinction between something, when something is just flat-out prohibited versus when something needs to be um, di discerned using Christian wisdom. Now, Scripture, this might, I don't, this might be surprising to some of you, the Bible does not have a verse anywhere that says, thou shalt not smoke weed, okay? 
So there is no outright prohibition in throughout the scriptures that says, you shall not do this with this particular form of the plant, right? But remember what we talked about when it comes to biblical freedom with alcohol? There's this, there's this aspect of freedom that we want to be careful to not just use that freedom to do whatever we want, but at the same time, we need to not put laws where the Bible doesn't put them. So we saw a moment ago, and, um, and we're going to take a look at a very similar idea. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes this. He says, he's writing to the uh, Christians living in Corinth, and he says, um, you say, I have the right to do anything. Right? He's quoting, he's quoting them. I have the right to do anything. And then he says, but not everything is beneficial. You say, I have the right to do anything, but I won't be mastered by anything. And so again, you can see Paul kind of getting to this idea of, of Focusing on wisdom, not just prohibition. Just because something is permissible doesn't mean that it's always wise to use it. So here's two questions that might be helpful that were around this topic that we could ask. So here's the first question that we could ask. We could ask this. Is this causing my body to be under the influence? Right? Am I putting myself under the influence of something? Now, the Bible is silent on the concept of getting high, right? But as we just looked at a moment ago, it's vocal about the concept of intoxication when it comes to alcohol. So it's reasonable, it's reasonable to apply a ver the very same teaching to other aspects, the other substances. Are we doing something that is putting us in a very similar intoxicated state, a state in which we are not really under our, our control of ourselves and of our body? And if that is the case, we are in, you know, putting ourselves in a place where our judgment is impaired, whatever it might be, wisdom, Christian wisdom, tells us that it ought to be avoided. Another question that we could ask is this. Am I negatively harming my body? Am I negatively harming my body? Paul writes in that same letter, 1 Corinthians, just a few verses later, he says, um, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. And so, Again, it's reasonable to apply this to various forms of substance use, including marijuana. Is doing this causing harm to my body? Is it causing negative effects to, to, to the body that God has given me? As believers, we carry the Holy Spirit within us. And therefore, we are called to, to treat our, our bodies with utmost respect and care. And so if marijuana is negatively affecting our bodies, then scripturally, we ought to stop. Now, many of us, you, you, you yourself, you might be sitting there thinking about all these different types of scenarios. Well, what if this? Or what about that? Or, you know, what if I did it on a Tuesday when it's raining outside? And whatever the case might be, right? One of those types of questions that some have asked are, what about CBD oil, right? Maybe some of you have heard about that or know people who use it or whatever. Maybe you've used it yourself. I don't know. Given what we've talked about so far, so far we could apply something like that to to a category of those non-essential beliefs in Christian living. There might be situations in where it is in fact wise for somebody to try to use something such as this, but, there's, but in a majority of situations, there's going to be times where it seems to be more violating some of those other principles that we talked about. And so this might be one of those situations where individual believers need to, to, to truly do the hard work of praying. Now, pastorally, if somebody were to come to me and ask what I, wanted, what I think, I would more than likely have some reservations and say, you know, I, I have a hard time being able to see how every, you know, how, how just blindly using this is, gonna, is always going to be wise, right? 
But I get that there's going to be situations where Christians might be able to truly agree to disagree. All right. Now let's switch gears a little bit and just take a look at our final question. This one, I promise, is not as controversial. Don't worry. Final question, how am I both righteous and a sinner at the same time? You know, sometimes we hear these, these verses, or uh, various verses that talk about how, we're, one, we're all sinners, and then the next verse talks about how we are washed in the blood of Christ. And how, can we, how are we both at the same time? This is a good question. Well, first of all, we have to acknowledge that um, the sinner part of ourselves, you know, the fact that, make, that we're sinners, we did that to ourselves, okay? That wasn't something that God was like, who wants to be a sinner? No, like, we are the ones who made ourselves sinful, and so we are completely sinful before God. We've done nothing to deserve God's, uh, God's love or God's grace because of our sinful condition. Paul says it this way in Romans 3. He says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, we have, therefore, within us this natural bent towards sin. We will naturally choose sin whenever we have the opportunity to choose it. But as we took, to, took a look at last week, we are, our, God's grace frees us to be able to actually not choose sin. And so those times that we overcome sin, it's by God's grace that he's freed us and given us the power to be able to do it. So then how are we also ne- declared righteous? How can we be both a sinner and declared righteous? We're declared righteous by God, quite frankly, because God says so. God says that we are righteous when, because of the death that Jesus gave his life on the cross for the penalty of our sin for all time. That because the price has been paid... God declares us as righteous. Now, there's this dichotomy then that exists, this dichotomy where there's at times where we feel like we're being led by our sinful nature, and there's at times where we might feel like we're led by the righteousness of, of, of God that, that God gives us. Even the Apostle Paul <coughs> excuse me, has moments in his own writings where he says, I am the worst of sinners. The Apostle Paul says, I am the worst of sinners. Times where he admits that he wishes he, he wouldn't do what he ends up doing. And yet at the same time, the Apostle Paul can rejoice that he is no longer under condemnation because he knows that he is in Christ Jesus. It's this strange tension that we must carry together as Christians. It's a gift at the end of the day that we even have the ability to be able to rejoice that we are are no longer under condemnation. God loves us so much that he paid the price for our sins and declared us righteous, enabling us to be able to have a relationship with well, friends, this has been an interesting journey as we've taken a look at all sorts of different kinds of questions. And I encourage you, though, you know, just because we had a sermon series that, you know, answered questions, don't let that be the end of your questioning. Allow the questions that you have to, to give you opportunities to go deeper into uh, your relationship with God. Search the scriptures. Talk with your small group about it. Email me. I won't make a promise that I'll give you an answer that you might want to hear. <laughs> But allow yourself to explore the powerful questions that that we have because many times God wants us to ask those questions because the questions are the ways in which we seek to grow closer. Those of you, again, as you can, how many of you have experienced a little child asking a hundred questions or more? The questions are the way that we grow. So don't be afraid to ask and discover the power that God has when we get answers. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you and we thank you for the ways in which you are at work in our lives and we ask that you would draw us closer to you through the various questions that we have and and Lord, that you would draw us deeper into your word as a result and that as we explore those various answers, we might experience just how great and loving and compassionate and merciful a God you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.